0: hi i'm jen and i'm jen welcome to marginalia podcast where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books.
1: I would like to begin by acknowledging the Guringai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present.
0: I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of the Whanganui Atara, where I am recording today. Um, right, well, so this week we're reading chapters 15 to 16 through the theme of equality. And boy... Boy, howdy, does it kick off in these two chapters. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the reading this week. <laughs> Me too, I have to say. It's just like, after so much build up to just have action was quite yeah. something. Yeah. Um, the theme was a challenge, I thought, but let's start with if you've got a little story for us about equality. I do. I kind of have a story about
1: how equality is not actually, like, equal. Ooh. Okay, so I have two kids, which you know, and I love them both so much. And like, it kills me how adorable they are. And they're so smart. And they are so funny. And they are just the best. And they are so different from each other. Like, they're so different. They're such great kids, but they are so different. Um, One of the biggest things for me as a parent was like, I was hardcore about treating them equally. So like, mm-hmm. If one of them gets a Nintendo DS for Christmas, the other one gets a Nintendo for Christmas. Mm-hmm. If you get a big stuffed animal, they're going to get a big stuffed animal. If they get to walk around with mommy and have ice cream one afternoon after school, next week it's your turn. Right. Yeah, you know, I like I try to get this sense of balance. And, you know, for the most part, like with stuff like that, we can do that. Mm-hmm. But actually, equality is impossible because they need me in different ways. in different Mm -hmm. amounts. So I can't treat them exactly the same or like they're gonna miss out. Somebody will miss out on something that they need. So even when I want things to be the same, I have to adjust and adapt. Mm -hmm. When my daughter was ready and able to do dance classes, she was in preschool. That didn't happen for my son until this year, and he's in year two this year. Right. They don't go at the same pace which means they don't get the same opportunities. And that sucks because I really want like to have ticked all these boxes. Mm -hmm. And so like learning about how to parent in the way that like gives them what they need is actually a better form of equality for us than it is to like just try and shove all of the things at them whether they're not ready for them. I don't know. Like when you have kids especially you you start to realize that you want to love them the same way. You want to treat them the same. You want to give them the same opportunities. And like to a limited degree you can do that but I mean, every person is different. So the best way to actually give them true equality is to like, look at what each of them needs and try to meet those needs the best that I can. I don't know if there's really a point to this. It's just like, as much as I love the idea of equality, sometimes it's actually like more about justice, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you've raised, and it is true, because like in a perfect world you want everyone to be the same, right? We all want to be like, yeah, let's all start from the exact same point, mm-hmm. but that's not how it works, because we don't all start from the same point, exactly. and that's where restorative justice is so important because mm-hmm. people do need to be up a bit higher than other people to get onto the same footing and to get to the same opportunities. and. Even then my idea of equality might not be what someone else needs and it's unfair for me to project my idea onto them because that's just another form of oppression in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, mm. Yeah.
1: There was a great line in a it was like a Maud Montgomery book where they were talking about a husband who didn't love his wife in the right way, so she he smothered and starved her. Like he gave her everything she didn't want and nothing that she needed. And I've always remembered that as just, like, the thing not to do when you're in a relationship or when you're parenting. Like, you don't give your kids stuff that they don't need and can't use. You have to give them what they need and can use. Mm, And it goes for partners as well. And, yeah, it's just, to me, it's absolutely wild that, like, the best way to treat my kids with any sort of equality is to treat them, like, to love them in different ways that they need.
0: Yeah, because it's about what they need. You're addressing their needs yeah. rather than what you think it should be. Exactly. Which is, I think, the right thing to do. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That's lovely. I don't know how I got so lucky, but
1: <laughs> it is absolutely my joy to spend this time working out how to do the right thing by
0: both of them. So They're delightful. They're pretty great. I had some friends over for dinner last week and um, they saw your son's artwork on Uh my fridge and I had to explain. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, well, you know, because I'm always complaining about the wind and he shared my outrage and now I have the sign (laughs) to tell the wind to go away. So funny. So cute.
1: Yeah. The other story I had was just like a crappy run-of-the-mill sexism at work from the before before times story and I thought, eh.
0: Yeah, I've had a bit of a... Yesterday in particular, I was particularly angry at the patriarchy. I just feel like it's been quite a rough week in terms of being a woman in society and it really grated me because, you know, Monday was International Women's Day and I was like empty platitudes, corporate discount, empty platitudes, (laughs) and then everything else that's happening and it's like, hmm, cool, thanks guys. Yeah. Cheers. It's not been a great week and it
1: seems like every International Women's Day it's like all of the men get together and do their absolute, not all the men. (laughs)
0: All men. Hashtag all men. I'm saying it.
1: Uh, Yeah, I would say that there are definitely a lot of men who feel like they have to defend against International Women's Day rather than just being like, oh, I'm not a woman, so this doesn't apply to me. Cool. (laughs) Like That's
0: all you have to do. Everything that doesn't involve you isn't automatically an attack on you. And if you think it's an attack on you, then maybe you should do some soul searching about why you feel that way. Yeah, it could be exhausting and it has been a very exhausting week. Maybe that's why I didn't want to, like, talk about my own exhaustion in that arena. I think that's fair enough. because You know, we have to give ourselves grace there as well. Because, yes, it's an important conversation and it's an important fight. But, Lord, I remember this quote a couple of years ago. I can't remember where it was from. And it just was a poem, I think. And it mm. said, all the women in me are tired. And yes. that's just how I feel sometimes. I'm yeah. like, yep. All the women in me are tired this week, too. But that's okay, because we've got this to fill our cup.
1: I know and so much happened it was very juicy there is lots to go on
0: oh should we do our uh, moments of wonder
1: oh yes of course all right can you go first I just want to hear your story it sounds really good
0: so I had a moment of wonder this week because I run a book club for some friends and it's called the Wellington Feminist Book Club and it started out and we'd read feminist texts but now we kind of just read anything and talk about it as feminists because we just all are feminists Um, And we had our meeting on Wednesday this week and we it was just really lovely. Like we've kind of got a core group of three women who always come along and then there's like periphery other people who sometimes turn up, sometimes don't. And we just had a really lovely chat. We read Such a Fun Age as our book this month. So we just had a really good chat about that. And it was just like it's such a privilege to sit with so many awesome people and get to talk about things you know they're all such intelligent funny smart women, and I just feel so blessed to have them in my life and have these different life experiences that they all bring and to be able to expose myself to that and learn and grow as well it's just like such a magical thing so yeah that sounds so good that's lovely how about you did you have a moment of wonder I did so
1: it's been more than 50 days since our last case of community transmission in the state so I went ahead and said, okay, we can go out to breakfast. Oh, yay. And I went oh out and gosh. ate a meal out of my home. <laughs> wow. And I got to eat with my husband and his brother, so two of my favorite people, and the kids were all in school. No children. All three oh, of the kids were in school. Oh, my gosh. So, like, we actually got to talk like adults. We talked about financial things. We were not interrupted a single time. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Anyway, it was a really lovely breakfast. And I was really glad to like go and eat and like break bread with people outside of my home. <laughs> for, That's awesome. Or someone else's home <laughs> in the approved hug circle, as it were.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's been a long time. We've had a lot of takeaway, but not a lot of actually eating in a restaurant. So
0: it's interesting because I've been reading a couple of articles like on the Guardian. And as people get vaccinated in other countries, like in the UK and the US, there are all these articles, people being like, Things I won't take for granted once the world returns to normal. People will be like, I'm not going to fill up my social calendar as busy as I used to be. I think three, you know, engagement max a week. I'm not going to be run off my feet. And we had this in New Zealand in June last year when we came Mm. out of our lockdown and everyone's like, this, my life is going to change. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And then like literally two months later, everyone was back to exactly how they were pre-pandemic.
1: That's amazing. But it was only a couple months, right? Maybe that's the difference.
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe if you've been in lockdown longer, it'll have a a bigger hold on you. I don't know. It's just interesting to see people now go through the same kind of discourse that we had last year Yeah. and knowing that it didn't take. Mm -hmm. Even people being like, imagine going to work when you're sick. Like, I can't believe that we ever did that. And at my work, certainly there are people coming to work when they've got colds, Yeah. which last year this time would have been like, no, no. But we've already kind of, yeah, we're already falling back into those patterns. So it's just, yeah, it's interesting, like psychologically. Quite
1: interesting. I mean, there's that, the feeling of safety, right? Yeah. You, and it's co-
0: kind like of complacency. It. Yeah. I yeah. think.
1: I know that complacency sounds bad, but like, isn't it also nice sometimes to just trust that things are not terrible? Yeah. Like, that's actually kind of lovely. You're allowed to be complacent.
0: You kind of want to live your life complacent in a way because if you're constantly on high alert, that's not nice either, is it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, like, the whole point of like a functioning government should be that there should be some level of social complacency because everything mm-hmm. should be working as it is
0: because that's the whole point of electing a government is so that we don't have to worry about those things. We elect people to worry for us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And to fill in the potholes in the road and to make sure that the school teachers are paid and to keep hospitals have looking hospitals. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, all of the essential things that we wouldn't do for ourselves.
0: I can't wait for us to be able to travel though. Like surely, surely the Australia New Zealand bubble cannot be that far off. And then I'm gonna come visit you, and it's gonna be amazing. And I'm gonna come visit you, and it will also be amazing. Yay! Make it happen, 2021.
1: Come on, just for this, just this year, we just need like just one shining bright spot.
0: I know. Just tell us, tell us it's gonna be September. Just give us something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I just want a date. Like everyone will be vaccinated by X. Okay. Well, existential (laughs) angst aside. (laughs) Would you like to do the summaries for us this week?
0: Sure thing. So, chapter 15, Lamia guides Hunter, Richard, and Dor to Down Street and the path to Islington. She tries to steal Richard's life, but the Marquis intervenes. Hunter betrays them, and Dor is captured by Krupp and Vandemar. In chapter 16, they all have to enter the labyrinth in order to get to Islington, who everyone now knows is actually pulling the strings. Krupp, Vandemar, and Dor make it through unscathed, and Dor is delivered to Islington. Hunter, Richard, and the Marquis are attacked by the Beast of London. Hunter tries to fight the Beast and is mortally wounded. She helps Richard to kill it and dies in the process. And Richard then runs off to go and help Dor. There was a lot this week.
1: Hmm. Indeed. Like I had to listen to it like four different times. I finished up this morning's listen while I was making pumpkin bread, so that was okay. Oh, yum! Yeah, that was pretty good. Wish I had pumpkin bread. I'll stick the recipe up in the show notes.
0: Oh, thanks. Um, so I found equality quite challenging as a theme. <laughs> I don't know about you.
1: I found it hard too because I like the rules are different in this society, right? Mm. So equality is just not baked in as a concept.
0: No. Definitely not. And people sort of revel in the fact that some people are not equal and lesser value. Mm. Like, even when Richard mentions, like, he asks Lamia if she knows the rat people and she's so dismissive of them, right? it's
1: like, mm. like, yeah, I know who they are, but, like, why would we be talking about them when I'm right here? Mm. It, it's very much, um... And I don't know if this is still a concept, but like the concept of tribalism, like you belong to like one group and that's the group to belong to and everyone else is below it. Yeah. That's what seems to be happening in London below.
0: Yeah, and in a way that's what Dawes' dad was kind of trying to fight against, right? He was trying to abolish that and establish a more equal society. So yeah.
1: I wonder if that's why Islington had him murdered. Yeah, it's weird Islington's
0: like whole jam, right? Because
1: I keep thinking like what would be the motives for this? We know that Lord Portico was trying to, like, unify or, like, maybe break down some barriers of the, like, strictures of people in London below, and Islington did not like this. And I I just, I don't know. I wonder if next, the next chapters will have more answers than this, because there has to be a good motive, right? Like, there has to be a reason why. I mean, unless you're Cupid Vandemar, just killing people randomly
0: does not seem like the norm. No. Um... Krupp and Vandemar also struck me as interesting in terms of equality, because I don't feel like, even though they're this team, they're mm. not equal either. Like, I feel like Krupp thinks he's a bit, he's above Vandemar in a way, right? That's yeah. the vibe I get from him, that he thinks he's, he's like, the smarter and, yeah. He's the brain. And Vandemar <laughs> is pinky. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. But Vandemar mm. is actually quite smart. He's just not smart in the same obvious way, right? Like, he was going on that little lecture where he was kicking Richard and all the different things, and he's like... And if I do it this way, it's less of a kick, but it still hurts as much as if I do it this way, which is more of a kick. And Richard's basically, like, trying not to weep copiously.
0: Yeah, he's like, I don't actually need this lecture. Thank you. Stop kicking me. Um... I find Vandemar really interesting. Like, obviously, we know that they're terrible characters and they do horrible things, Mm. but something about Vandemar is quite compelling. The way that he behaves, I find quite compelling. Like, the way he thinks about things for a really long time. Like, Mm. even in the last section, when the whole shopping trolley situation, Mm. just the way he internalizes his thoughts, there's something about it I'm just quite interested in. In a way that I don't really care about Croup, because Croup is just... He's all surface. Yeah. It's just like such obvious evil. It's not engaging. He's a very wide but shallow river. Whereas
1: I guess Vandemar is what? The Bolton Strid? Hmm. Like very deep and deadly and terrifying but is just a little bit you only see a little bit of it
0: yeah and so you're wondering what else is going on in there Mm. what other motivations are there
1: i i agree that there's an inequality in their relationship and that group seems to be the one driving it but i also don't think that group could survive without vandemar and i Mm. wonder if there's like and i don't think the reverse is true i think vandemar would be fine with that group
0: yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that Kroup needs Vandemar in a way that, yeah, Vandemar doesn't need him mm. because Vandemar is the muscle. And, like, Kroup is deadly in his own way, but Vandemar is the one with the actual power.
1: Yeah. And um, it does seem that. The people who are often in power are kind of the ones who need, or that would be the most vulnerable if they weren't in
0: power. It's just suddenly just had this memory of like, I think it reminds me of the Lion King and Scar and the hyenas. And yes. And is scar, and he's, like, trying to pull the strings, and then eventually Vandemar's is going to go, actually, I don't need you, in the way that the hyenas just turn on Scar. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, so, like, it's never Krupp or Vandemar. it's Krupp and Vandemar.
0: Yeah. package deal yeah
1: they are a team and like sometimes maybe that's like because they're a team their inequality balances out in some way
0: yeah because they've got different strengths and weaknesses right
1: yeah so i kind of wondered like is it inequality when you have like for me the biggest thing was like it takes all of these different pieces to get to the outcome so is it inequality that everybody in the team has a different like role to play because I was really angry that Richard got to kill the beast. I was furious mm-hmm. about that because that was Hunter's entire job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, like, she was in on the joke at the end of it where she was laughing and she said, you will be known as the greatest warrior. Like, you are the mm-hmm. one who's killed the beast of London. Like, ha ha, it's Richard. And even Richard's like, I, I, I can't do this. Mm. Um, but he does. Because she is such a fantastic warrior that she's able to tell him how to do it when she herself has failed. And, like, they needed the beast to die in order to then be able to navigate the labyrinth, which isn't actually a labyrinth, but I'll get to that later. So... All of these things had to happen. The marquee had to turn up at the right time. Lamia had to be there when the marquee wasn't.
0: Yeah, it's like, is it inequality when you need different parts to make the whole? So, you know, Krupp and Vandemar, for example, are not equally weighted, but together they make a balanced whole. Yeah, right? they're so, greater
1: than the sum of their parts, yeah.
0: Yeah, they when they're in the unit, they are equal. Yes. The same way that Richard is maybe not is not equal to Hunter or the Marquee. like he doesn't bring the same value. But you need him to complete the trio in order to achieve the goal. Like, yeah. So you still need that for the all the parts together are equal.
1: It's like a relay race, right? Like you all have to be able to do a different part of the relay. Mm. But, like, Richard doesn't seem to have any talents, except he will do what he's told, for the most part. Yeah, he's good at
0: following directions. You have to hand it to him. This week I just kept thinking, like, people just kept telling him what to do, and he was like, okay, and did it. Which is underrated, I have to say. Like, sometimes you tell people how to do things and then they can't follow directions, and it can be very frustrating. So. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: do you think that knowledge is what gives equality?
0: Yeah, that was one of my points as well. I think knowledge is an equaliser, especially in this section, because now that everyone is suddenly on the same page, like they all know that Hunter is the one who betrayed them. They all know that Islington is behind it, and it just kind of puts them all on equal footing. Because previously we've seen kind of Krupp and Vandemar hold that over Dor, for example, but then when Dor is on the same field as them, that gives her courage, and she sort of, yeah. you know, tries to wind them up a little bit.
1: I love that she immediately understood that Islington was not her friend, and what did she have left to lose? Let's just get mm. the big beast of London to come and attack these guys. It was very noble and stupid
0: of her. Yes, but what else was she going to do? Yeah, pretty much,
1: yeah. I also wonder, because they all know what Lamia is, right? Dor has yeah. to know. Hunter has to know.
0: And they just leave Richard behind. And they
1: just leave. And I at first I thought, like, maybe Hunter... Kind of just has to like walk away from Richard because it would be extremely inconvenient to have to deal with him Mm -hmm. when she's about to betray Dor. So, like, Mm -hmm. Lammy is sort of a self-saucing pudding, so to speak. Yeah. But she's also very protective of him the entire time right like this is the only time she doesn't save his life basically of all the times that he's needed his life saved mm you know this this time it's the Marquis who steps in and does that
0: and she also wasn't keen to have Lamia come along right so it wasn't like she was like oh this will be a handy distraction to my ploy exactly maybe she was just too caught up in what she was about to do to really pay attention to Richard in that moment yeah it's a weird one it feels very out of
1: character for her to allow it but at the same time like this is the thing why did nobody tell him? <laughs> Like, why didn't somebody pull him aside and say, she's gonna want to take your life. That's her entire gig. Yeah, it would have taken two seconds. And then he would have been informed and he could have made an informed decision like, well, we need to get
0: down there. And this is what that's worth. And like, whatever, It'll just be on oh my guard. But no, he <sighs> falls for the whole shtick. And that's yet again, people not telling Richard things, right?
1: I mean he's an idiot yes and he doesn't listen sure but like if you tell him he will try to do Mm. the right thing almost every time he will try to do the right thing
0: just tell him just tell him just communicate I um, also thought there was something about fear being an equaliser I just thought when Richard was on the plank which was a terrifying sequence of uh, events Mm. you know when he had to walk across I kind of felt that viscerally when he's like on his hands and knees clinging to the plank. And there's that section on page 293 that says it was the fall he was scared of, afraid of flailing and tumbling helplessly through the air down to the rock floor below, knowing there was nothing he could do to save himself, no miracle that would save him. And that made me think, yeah, fear is an equalizer because when you are afraid of something, we're all afraid of something, right? So you yeah. can kind of relate to that. And also like death is an equalizer. Because there's equality in death. Everyone's going to die. Yeah. Um. And then you see the Marquis behaving so differently after he's died. Like he suddenly he treats Richard differently. He's not quite so like dismissive of him. Yeah. He treats him more as an equal now that like he's died. And I thought that Mm. was really interesting too.
1: Yeah, I, I clocked that as well. The, the Marquis seems to have been given something essential back, not just his life, mm. but I think whatever part of him was in that duck egg was also the compassionate part mm. because he's suddenly so much more gentle with Richard. Like he cares enough to stop Lamia, which he would not have done that without asking for a favor first, right? Yeah. Richard's already frozen and he says to her, go near him again, you or any of the Velvet children, and I'll come by day to your cavern while you sleep and i'll burn it to the ground understand but no he threatens the entire like mm. clan or tribe or whatever doesn't require anything from richard of it uh, like just does it out of the goodness of his i don't know existence
0: yeah it's this idea maybe that splitting his soul like that like putting his soul in a, in, in the duck egg and doing something like that ha- did remove make him less human right mm. like remove a part essential part of his life because he had separated it from his soul
1: yeah he made a horcrux. <laughs> but he's been unhorcruxed. Hmm.
0: But yeah, I, de- I definitely thought there was, yeah, the Marquis is treating Richard a lot differently than he did. A lot less contempt in his behaviour.
1: Yeah, and um, I kind of like that he's still trying to be very swaggy about it. Like, he hmm. won't kill Hunter because he's like, oh, I'd hate to exhaust any options. But I feel like it's also more than that.
0: Yeah, and he also tries to act all swaggy even though he can't really like walk properly or do anything. Like he takes a really long time and he sends Richard ahead of him to go and, you know, find Dor because you know, he's injured, he's still recovering and Yeah, he literally swagger had a death can... experience. Yeah, swagger can only take you so far, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I just love the description on page 298 which is like, the Marquis looked at him with eyes that had seen too much and gone too far Mm. I just thought that was really telling Like I thought it was really wonderful that
1: Richard finally grows up a little bit here Mm. he gets that understanding of other people in that, you know, he was what was it, page 305 he was quite certain that all of his experiences of the last day paled into something rather small and insignificant when placed beside whatever the Marquis had experienced, so he said nothing Finally, Richard's not complaining.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's finally starting to understand. And I just, there's another line there, Um, page 311, you know, when he's writing the little letter in his head for himself, Mm. where he's like, dear diary. And he says, he had gone beyond the world of metaphor and simile into a place of things that are, and it was changing him. Yeah, I'm like, yes, finally, you are accepting that this is just a reality. And Mm -hmm. it's not up to you to argue with that reality. You just need to, like, deal with it
1: yeah I like that one too I underlined that one as well I like that he was in the place that things
0: are Mm. it felt like he'd finally accepted London Below as a reality that sort of is an equality thing too because now suddenly he is actually on equal footing with everyone else in London Below Mm -hmm. because he's not he's no longer fighting them he's no longer being like but that can't be and this can't be and that and whatever he's just like okay we are just experiencing the same thing
1: yeah poor Richard yeah. I, I want to talk about his relationship with Hunter. Mm. So, look, I think they're kind of like the ultimate bro TP because he's kind of a himbo and she's like the hyper competent lesbian warrior. You know what I mean? Like, I was going to say, like, soccer and tough, but not really. But, you know. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, I love that comparison.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? It's a little bit there. I mean, I think that Sokka's got yards on Richard, but...
0: But it takes him a while to get there. Like, it takes Sokka a long while, and he really only comes into his own when he gets that sword, you know, when he has that little journey of his own, which is just so sweet. And Richard hasn't really had that.
1: No, this is it. Like, this is, this is that moment mm. for him, I think. This is yeah. his
0: reckoning. And I think Richard and Hunter's relationship, I was thinking about it as, like, the epitome of compassion, like the way they treat each other I think is the most compassionate of any other relationship in this text Mm, mm -hmm. so, you know, Hunter is always the one helping Richard, she's always the one answering his questions most of the time, she's saved his life multiple times Yeah. Um, and that whole scene where she like talks him through his fear of heights is just actually incredible, what she does for him there. Yeah, and he says, you know thank you, he said, he could not think of anything else to say to Hunter that would be big enough to cover what she had just done for him Yeah. and I think that is such an important realization for Richard to have moments before finding out that Hunter's betrayed them. And he takes that so hard, Yeah, but he's still so desperately moved by her death. And it's just kind of that that knee-jerk reaction where you're like, I'm so angry at you and I can't believe you've done that and we should just kill you. But he doesn't mean it.
1: No, he absolutely doesn't. He's he's having a dummy spit, right? He Mm. feels betrayed. Gratefully so. But he's so tenderly compassionate for her as soon as she's injured he's crawling through this horrible marsh not caring what he or who he's crawling over to make sure that she's okay when the beast has come back a second time and he's actually killed it he's sitting there thinking like i can't pull her out from underneath him mm-hmm. so i'll have to move this enormous beast off of her and, and like he, he's talking like do you have healers like what can we do and then once she's dead it's we can't leave her here we can't leave her body like he has yeah. so much affection and and, like care for her and she does for him in her own way too and I just yeah I really love it because I feel like the relationship with Richard and Dora is more like maybe like cautious roommates like they're getting along okay but mm. we don't know how it's gonna go we'll, we'll see six months down the road if they're actually like enjoying living together but with Hunter and Richard they're like siblings
0: yeah I think there's something really beautiful about their relationship and I think like Hunter's betrayal in a way even though she has betrayed them it doesn't there's something about it that doesn't, to me, she. I feel like she doesn't really see it as a betrayal in a way because she doesn't actually care about Dor's quest. Like she has her own quest. And therefore yeah. for her to like barter Dor for the spear to achieve this goal that she has isn't for her really that big a thing. And like when Richard calls her out of it, on it and, you know, says that what if she kills us? And she says, well, what kind of challenge would I have hunting you? I have bigger game to kill. Like, she is so set in who her, her identity and what she wants to achieve, that all this yeah. other stuff is just a periphery. Like, it doesn't really even enter her sphere of consciousness in a way. It's, it's sort of like, you can't be upset when
1: an animal does what an animal does. Like, I hate to compare her to an animal, but like, that's the vibe I get, right? If an elephant tramples you to death, then like, oh, it wasn't being mean, it was being an elephant.
0: It's like when a tiger mauls a magician and you're kinda of like, Wow, well, what did you expect? So, exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. Like
0: This is a risk that you took and yeah.
1: Hunter was never very forthcoming anyway. And Dor trusted her because Dor usually gets a vibe about people, but I don't think is actually that intuitive. Maybe.
0: No, I yeah, I feel like they just trusted Hunter because she came to addition to be their bodyguard and they're like, okay, you've got the job and that's it. They never really interrogated the hows and the whys of that. Yeah. And I don't feel like anyone really tried to figure out what Hunter's motivation was or why she was doing what she was doing. Like, Richard's the only one who really engaged her.
1: Yeah, he does want to know all the whys about everything. That's actually a point in his favour, I think. I think it's good when you're in any situation that's unfamiliar to ask why. Maybe trust the people around you, but, like, also ask why. I think that's fair. Um, do you think that there was inequality between Lamia and Richard? That she was using her power on him? Do you think he would have still been as giving of himself if he knew?
0: Hmm, probably not, right? Because he wouldn't have trusted her. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. That whole scene really bothered me because she immediately turned petulant. And that's just like, again, we're looking at somebody who operates on a different axiom, right? Mm. She is not a person. Not in the same way that like Richard is a person or the Marquis even is a person. So... Of course she's not going to, like, she just needs to eat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's hungry, like, and this person has presented themselves, like, hello, I could be a meal, and, like, maybe she knows that they wouldn't consent, but, like, she is not a person. I, it's really
0: hard for me, but she's treated like a person, but she's not. You know what I mean? Mm, that's like Edward Cullen, you know? He's told Bella that <laughs> you can't trust him because he will just, she's just a meal to him. That's what we've got here.
1: I'm gonna have to read Twilight again. It's been so long.
0: Oh my gosh, should we do that? Is it sacred text? Can you imagine?
1: <laughs> Did we really just read that? Like, maybe maybe I should read it, and then I'll read the, the new book. I haven't read it yet.
0: So. Oh, I cannot, I cannot even begin to tell you what a, a ride that is. I am so excited. It looks super angsty. I'm here for it. Oh, I think I read it in a day. I was just beside myself with... Joy, but like terrible joy. Yeah, like, I shouldn't. I take such like, joy in it. Gleeful joy. And it, it just reminded me of how obsessed I was. Like when these books came out, I was obsessed with Jasper. I loved Jasper. Really? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I loved him so much. I love a peripheral character that I can just fixate on. So Jasper was like, yep, yep, this is the one. I love him, I'm obsessed with him. And then in, what is it called, Midnight Sun, there's this whole new element to Jasper, and Jasper is so present, and I'm like, oh yeah, I loved you, I (laughs) forgot about you. (laughs) It's so (laughs) great. I
1: forgot you, but I love you again. I'm like, oh yeah, you. Anyway. I've had lots of fictional boyfriends like that. I'm still getting over my last fictional boyfriend. He did not get what he deserved, and I am very sad. Oh, who was your last fictional boyfriend? Bellamy from The Hundred. Oh. Uh... I am very tired of grimdark showrunner nonsense boys who think that if an audience correctly predicts the way a story should go, they have to change it all because it's not surprising anymore. Like, we don't want to twist. If we're predicting where the story goes, it means that the clues that you have laid out for us are coming to fruition. That is the, that is a mark of good storytelling. We see it in this book. There are so many little clues. There was a clue last week when we were talking about Hammersmith. Mm-hmm. And now there was another mm-hmm. clue this week about Richard finding something unusual in his pocket and also saying, I have the key. And I would bet you that we're going to find out he actually does have the real key. Right? Yeah but like all of these clues are building up to one thing and if we've been paying attention which because we're close reading we are we kind of get there before the reveal is
0: and then we get that satisfaction of being right which is amazing and that's why i love like murder mysteries in particular like i've got all the agatha christie books and stuff and like that's one of the joys as a mm. reader is when you're like oh i know where this is going i've predicted it correctly but you're mm. right you're absolutely right that in shows that have been going for years for example supernatural there's this thing being like oh no the, the fans have figured out what we're doing so we better just bait and switch and do something entirely different it's like game why? of thrones
1: did this supernatural did this yes uh the hundred did this to a much lesser degree like it's okay for the audience to get their way.
0: And it's not pandering to the fans if that's literally the story you've written. You're actually doing more damage if you then usurp everything that you've written because you don't want to give the fans what, like, what is happening? I don't yeah, understand. Yeah,
1: it's like literally, you're planting a beautiful rose garden and you tend it for like however many years and then at the end you pave it and you go, haha, you weren't expecting that, were you?
0: We wanted to pick the roses. They were almost blooming. If in Doctor Who they'd gone, oh, actually the fans really want 10 and Rose to get together so therefore we will just not do that anymore and just kill her off or something. Like you would lose all that emotional work and it's just it's bizarre. It's a bizarre tendency. And I absolutely don't think you should write for fans. Like if fans are like, you know, writing you death notes because you've not <laughs> delivered the um the ending that they wanted. I'm not saying cater to them just specifically for that. But if the story was always gonna go one way, you don't just then throw it all out because you don't feel clever enough. I
1: honestly think that shows should have a set beginning, middle, and end and, like, a target. You should pitch it like this will be six series. Agree. It's gonna tell this story. Or it's gonna be three series and it'll tell this story. Because the thing is when you get renewed over and over, you're you're making something that's serial, but it's not, like, not all stories are designed to work that way. Mm-hmm. It's better to make the right thing than try and extend something that doesn't need to be extended. Which is why,
0: like, stuff like The Good Place ending when they do makes sense because you're like, these <sighs> characters have gone the right trajectory, like you know, they've gone yeah. as far as they could go, and that's why I stopped watching Supernatural. I think it was end of season six because I'm like, this is the natural conclusion of the story. Yeah, it needs it goes where it needs to go. They're gonna keep dragging it out, but this is where I leave the characters. It's the same like For nine watched more seasons, of- you poor thing. Oh God. <laughs> And I watched up until the end of season three of Sons of Anarchy, because I was like, yes, this is the, the emotional conclusion that I need to these characters' story, and therefore I'm out. You know I have a Charlie Hunnam problem, right? Who doesn't, though? She, like,
1: Pacific Rim <laughs> is what got me. I was like, who is this resplendent boy with his face okay, so good?
0: So I love Pacific Rim. It's one of my all-time favorite films, and it's I will defend it to It's the a death. great movie it's got like it hits all the beats yes. it is an incredible piece of cinema I don't care what anyone says I will fight them listen drift compatible
1: should be in the lexicon it is the perfect way to describe soulmates without it being soulmates
0: and I love that I love that you know you can have a story like I love a bit of romance but I love that they've just got you can be platonic soulmates you and can I think read it either they, way yeah and I love that
1: the Pacific Rim ending with them like together but not like in capitals together sometimes we get these characters who are basically married and we should just let them be that way. Like whether they're platonically together forever or romantically, like that's what's at that point. It's the team we're in it for. We are here for the team. It's your Frodo and Sam. Oh my gosh, Yes. Is there a ship name for them? Is it Fram? Probably. I want to know. Oh, man. It's just,
0: yeah, it's hard when it feels like the story just doesn't reach its natural conclusion.
1: Yeah. So, with all of the problems that I've had with this story, this story is a heck of a story. It is actually mm-hmm. telling a story in the way that a story should be told.
0: And it does, like, I am reminded the last section we read in these two chapters, like, it really does come home strong. Like, it mm-hmm. comes thundering through, and you're like, oh, okay, all these things, like, the threads are being pulled together, which is what a good storyteller should do. Do. it should Absolutely. pull the threads together and i think sometimes i'm just impatient and especially because we're reading it so slowly yeah. right such a close reading it just feels like oh just give me the joy this is belabored but it's not really it's just we're taking it slightly it was
1: quite hard in the beginning because we felt like we weren't getting something i think with a story like this when you don't have the action happening you want more world building Mm. so and I think that's why the Scorpio races worked so well for me was because we kept getting character development we kept getting background character development and we got so much world world building building.
0: and I was thinking about that because you know I said when we first started reading this um, text that I didn't realize that it was A companion to the show That the show came first Mm. And I never realised that Until I researched it And I was thinking that Maybe that's why There's not so much world building Because when you do A visual medium You don't really spend That much time Getting into the hows And whys of why it exists right it just like already exists in your mind so you just write the characters you write the story it's like fan fiction right yeah and like I feel like because in American Gods I know you know authorial intent or whatever but there's a lot more world building in that so we Mm -hmm. do know that it's not it's not that Neil Gaiman isn't capable of world building it's just in this text
1: yeah I think that the the power of this novel is that it is coming to an amazing storytelling conclusions. Like he can spin a yarn. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I'm so glad that it's happening now. Like finally we're getting
0: there. <laughs> and it feels almost like I feel a bit giddy because it's been such a long time coming. It's like, yeah. oh finally Richard.
1: He's a bit hopeless, isn't he? Our Richard. <sighs> oh my goodness. Um I will say one more thing for the compassion that I saw the marquee offer. Uh-huh he said to Richard that he was going to go against his wishes and take Hunter with him but
0: if you want to wait here, no one would accuse you of cowardice, which I thought was a really generous thing. Yes, I got that as well I made that note too, I thought, again it just showed that the Marquis is quite different now, Mm. and he was just, yeah Beautiful. And also when he, the Marquis asks Hunter, like, do you keep your hive hidden anywhere, Hunter Mm. I thought, was he gonna take, if she said yes, was that gonna be something that he took on himself? Because again, that's not something he would have done, he would have asked for a favour, he would have yeah. done something there but here he was willing to extend that hand and be like i will do this for you
1: yeah i thought that was a really beautiful gesture too like he he, d- he really doesn't want to get involved he's so tired and he's just trying to heal but mm. he goes over there anyway and he sort of says look do you keep your life hidden anywhere and what can we do and like you know he tries he's answering richard's questions about healers i mean bless him bless him he's trying i think yeah the marquis got his soul back
0: yeah, and actually, just on that point where you know he says to Richard, "You don't have to come in here," mm. you know, "No one will accuse you of cowardice." Richard then has this thought where he says, "Sometimes there's nothing you can do." Yeah, and for me, that just really put me in mind of the prologue. There was something in the tenor of that thought that felt very much like the, you know, sometimes you you have a good t- you have a good heart. Sometimes that's enough. Yeah, but mostly yeah. it's not. That's how that line felt to me. Like sometimes. There's nothing you can do.
1: Well, that's the theme of the whole book, right? Like, he might have a good heart, but he needs a lot of help and a lot of guidance. And he needs other people's strengths
0: and skills, and they need his heart to get where they're going. Because good intentions is not enough to get you where you want to go. And I think maybe if we come back to the theme of equality, that's true as well. Like, sometimes just wanting to be a good person or wanting to believe that you aren't you know benefiting from the structural inequalities yeah exactly yeah but just believing that it's not enough you need yeah. to have people to help you on that journey so that you can grow as a person too
1: yeah but so. like nobody owes you their time as well like i acknowledge no. that oh yeah
0: no absolutely
1: but i also say like if you're in a position of inequality and someone is like so how do I do this? I just have like a little link thing. I have it in my notes app on my phone. This is your feminism primer. This is your anti-racist primer. So like nobody owes you their time. But if someone asks, sometimes it's good to have that thing in your pocket. You can just be like, here's the thing I prepared
0: earlier. So maybe that's what they, they needed for Richard, right? Because Richard asks a lot of questions that people don't really give him the information he needs. But if no one owes, no one, like Hunter doesn't owe Richard her time. Most no. of the time she takes time to educate him, but she doesn't always.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she feels a bit responsible for him since she saved his life.
0: Oh, I love that line where she's like, I saved your life, Richard Mayhew, many times on mm. the bridge, at the gap, mm. on the board up there. She looked into his eyes and it was Richard who looked away. And I love that she said his full name as well. It just felt... It invokes something.
1: I love that because to me, that was like the deep platonic love that I wanted. Mm. I wanted her to be like, yes, I'm a deeply flawed person who has one goal in this life. And it is to be the hunter and to hunt and kill the beast." but she couldn't help falling a little bit for Richard. Not not in a mm. love romantic love way because she's gay mm-hmm. but because she cares about him. Like they have this closeness, this relationship that's now like it's not even Dor. Everybody should love Dor because Dor is so lovable. It's Richard. Bumbling, hapless Richard. There's something about that good heart that she can't help but warm to.
0: And you see it so clearly at the start of this when she goes up and she like goes onto this plank yeah. and literally like touches his hand and sort of urges him across. Like what an act of compassion that is! Like I love it, and he so admires her too.
1: Yeah. Did you have any more compassion, or well, I mean, you've got plenty of compassion. Did you have any more comments about <laughs> compassion or equality?
0: Yeah, I guess the only other thing I was there was something about um, when the Marquis explains to Richard that Islington is behind it all, or you know, Hunter says that it was Islington, and Richard is like, oh, but he's an angel. I've met him. I, you know, I've met yeah. them. I've been there. And the Marquis says, when angels go bad, Richard, they go worse than anyone. Mm. Remember Lucifer used to be an angel? And again, I just, I, yeah, <laughs> I thought there was something about maybe an equality in that because, I don't know, it feels like, it feels like Islington should be more focused on maintaining balance in the world, right? Because that's yeah. what you expect from angelic beings, like that should be the goal, and yet When angels go bad, they go worse than anyone, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, look, they're divine, right? The whole idea behind divine beings and angels in particular is that they're not human. Mm. They're not people. They're not even people adjacent. No. So to, like, think that we as mortals or even functionally immortal would be able to understand their
0: yeah their kind of goals or the way their mind works it's the same with like if we're saying about lamia not being human and therefore acting on her urges yeah and hunter kind of just acting on her overall motivation
1: yeah her ambition has become her defining feature
0: yeah so we don't know what an angel's defining goal is really because yeah I guess we'll find out. It's just an interesting concept that people come with these really preconceived notions. Like, Richard has very preconceived notions of what Islington should be capable and shouldn't be capable of, right? Yeah. And even Daw, because it never really enters their mind that they couldn't trust Islington. It's just... Well,
1: and her father's journal specifically said, trust Islington, so of course she was going to.
0: Even though that's sus. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. We now know that that was obviously not her father saying that because, like, Islington had him murdered. I want them to have faith in something that bears out, you know?
0: Mm. I thought it was interesting, this is tangential, but, you know, at the end of the section Richard has this dirge going through his head. I looked it up and it was, you know, this kind of whole thing about transitioning from living into purgatory. It's a dirge that is about purgatory. And I thought that Richard's time in London Below so far, he has kind of been in purgatory. He's not living his life, he's not present. He's just waiting, right? And now he's killed the beast with Hunter's help. Without Hunter, he wouldn't have done it. Let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's like he's now emerging from purgatory. He's actually becoming fully present in London Below. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for looking it up.
1: I have a really hard time with poetry. And stuff in a text, I find it really difficult to like focus on it because it's not the mm. story. So, thank you for having the attention to be able to do that.
0: Oh, good. So, it's like Wake Dirge, a traditional English folk song, and the song tells of the sto- souls' travel and the hazard it faces on its way from Earth to Purgatory. Oh, wow! I thought it was quite apt for him to have that in his mind. Purgatory's Catholic, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and Scotland
1: has the whole Scotland very Catholic. Scots are yeah, you Catholic?
0: I love that. They've got the whole thing, they've got the thing where they fight each other. Oh, like
1: Ireland does? Well. Maybe not, not. as big as the one in Ireland, because I know that Mary, Queen of Scots, was Catholic
0: and that was a problem because her son was not, right? Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. I'm trying to put a Protestant on the throne and then a Catholic on the throne and then it's a the whole thing and then I don't really know.
1: Did you have any other um, miscellaneous or tangential things? Because I like had a
0: few. Um... The other thing I was going to say is just I absolutely love the description of the Beast of London. Like, it's on page 313, where it was, It was the size of an ox, of a bull elephant of a lifetime. It stared at them, and it paused for a hundred years, which transpired in a dozen heartbeats. I am obsessed with this sentence. I think it is just a thing of beauty. It's just gorgeously written and just, like, I love it. I love the, the how evocative it is. I love, like, the idea of, you know, it's the size of a lifetime and it pours for a hundred years. Like, you can just feel it and I just, mm. I love it. Mm. Um, yes. And the other thing I was going to just, which I'm sure you're going to talk about now, <laughs> is the labyrinth and how it's built of lost fragments of London above. I love that so much.
1: So cool. I specifically love that all of these neighborhoods that fell through the cracks just fell down into the labyrinth and became the labyrinth.
0: I love that. And I love that they kept their place as well. So you've got this description of the different lighting, like it's Mm. gaslight and then it's this and it's that. And it's like, it's really just so fascinating. All right.
1: So I have first a theory, which I'm going to run by you. Mm -hmm. I think that Jessica was the main orchestrator for Richard's ability to survive in London Below. Ooh, okay. Okay, now this is a stretch, but I've got super long arms, so I'm going to go for it. Mm -hmm. She dragged him around, getting him used to walking. Mm -hmm. She exposed him to all sorts of random things with which he could, like, tie a cultural education to, but it ended up serving him really well in London below because he had been exposed to all sorts of random things, which meant he Mm -hmm. was kind of low-key prepared for anything. Mm -hmm. He was also really used to being out of his element with her. Mm -hmm. So he was like just bumbling along out of his element with Dor and Hunter and whoever. He got used to being told what to do by beautiful women. And that is Mm -hmm. now like such a Pavlovian response that he was able to slay the Beast of London because Hunter told him exactly when to strike. So that's my theory. What do you think?
0: I quite enjoy that. I think that's actually... That's really interesting. I think she definitely set him up for being present in situations where he didn't actually want to be present in. Like she Mm, kind of mm -hmm. like made him him go to museums and made him do all these things and go for walks and do all these things. So I think that did help set him up, even without him knowing, because he's not conscious of the fact. So I think that's a really interesting concept. And yeah, yeah, he obviously learned how to follow directions. Definitely. Yeah. Like, and quite explicitly too. That's really interesting. Especially since he, I never felt like he was really present with Jessica. So the idea that he would still have absorbed something from that, relationship is really yeah it's promising <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah poor jessica she deserved better okay so that was my big theory i could not stop thinking about how he was able to kill the beast of london i'm like there there had to be something that facilitated that and i was like well it's all hunter's skill but he had to be the arm because hers was like literally torn off mm. but he's been doing what he's told for like three years so he's really good at it by now so yeah i, I think the credit really goes to jessica for like training richard to follow directions well and Accurately, because of that he was
0: able to slay the beast hunter just stepping in front of that beast and like drawing all its attention and the, basically sacrificing herself knowing that she was already not going to survive right but sacrificing herself so that richard can get that yeah. final thrust is just it's so incredible
1: it's an amazing way to make amends but she did always say she was going to kill the beast or die trying mm. like it it was never far from her mind that that was a possible outcome
0: and it's still sort of her victory it is her victory because mm. yeah he's Absolutely just the weapon is. that she used I
1: mean look it's very typical that a woman of colour does like 99% of the work and then a white man steps in does the last 1% and gets all the credit but like we're calling this hunter's win.
0: Yeah he's just the tool that she used. Yeah Richard becomes the spear which I love. Um, I also mm. wanted to talk about how
1: the fact that labyrinths are not mazes and this is not a labyrinth. Okay I'm so annoyed <laughs> at this. A labyrinth is a specific structure that goes around and around and always leads to the center mazes have Mm -hmm. dead ends mazes are the things you can get lost in labyrinths are just one path there are labyrinths everywhere there are amazing labyrinths in like cathedrals the minotaur was in a labyrinth Mm -hmm. but that was like a really elaborate game of hide and seek right yeah they're not mazes So I know that this is called The Labyrinth. And I'm also aware that my favorite movie of all time, The Labyrinth, has a labyrinth that is not a labyrinth in
0: it. It has a maze. It has a maze. (laughs) But yeah, this is a maze.
1: Um, And I I know that we talked about Lamia. Like, Lamia itself, the name Lamia, I really wanted to touch on because she's like yeah she's a vampire she's a warmth vampire she steals people's lives it's kind of a nursery in like ancient Greece and I really love folklore and I really love nursery bogarts in particular mm-hmm. the reason for a lot of these in a lot of cultures I know in England in particular they have like Peg Powler and Jenny Greenteeth that's my personal favorite and Jenny Greenteeth right. is said to like haunt the rivers and creeks and like she'll snatch children if they get too close and the reason for that is to keep little kids from wandering too close to water that they could fall in and drown in Okay. <laughs> Lamia was once uh, like a nursery bogger, But sort of in the Victorian era, she sort of transformed from her hideous origins. She became more like a vampire, so seductive, like a succubus. Right. And it was at that time, Lamia, the concept, went from being like really gruesome nursery bogger to like a femme fatale. She used to be described as scaled, having the body of a goat, the head of a female woman, and testicles that smell like sea calves. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting uh, development. And my last tangent, I think, would be that the Great Beast of London is based on a real urban legend, the Black Swine of Hampstead. Oh, hey. I know. <laughs> I, I thought that was really cool because I was
0: like, surely there has to be something. So I just Googled until I found something. Some basis for it. Mm, interesting. I'm still stuck on the labyrinth. And the difference between a labyrinth and a maze.
1: They look very different. They don't look like a maze at all. So they're more like back and forths to a center. And then you either go out the way you came or you go back and forth out a different way. Mm. But they put them in cathedrals. Um, I feel like they had one set up in London as a temporary thing. Maybe at St. Paul's that people could walk.
0: I'm just interested because like Islington is at the end of this this whole thing right mm. you have to go through it to get to islington so he's not at the center of the labyrinth he's not at the he's at the end yeah or is he uh, uh, they oh lord i keep misgendering this poor angel it's
1: okay i couldn't get my head around it last week i had to spend all week going they 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 they
0: <laughs> so. and they. And, Krupp and venom are just kind of barrel on through yeah with the token the token up ahead of them did you notice they took the
1: tunnel through the fleet marshes and didn't actually go through the marsh at all
0: ah, so they went nice. underland
1: and then and richard and hunter and the Marquis went overland that feels like an error <laughs> yeah considering the
0: mosquitoes yeah and then the marsh eating the token that oh, was not fun i was i just felt that sick fear yeah now it's gone mm-hmm. yeah what do you do Go back, stay where you are, muddle along.
1: I mean, the obvious answer is you kill the beast and you put its blood in your mouth and your eyes.
0: And if Hunter didn't tell them to do that, how would they have known? Just saying. (laughs) I don't
1: know. That doesn't seem like the natural thing for me to do either.
0: No. And, you know, she just helps them right till the very end. Gives them her knife...
1: I think my favorite part was when Richard was really weeping over her death and didn't realize it, and all he could do was continue cleaning the knife because it was the last thing that she had told him to do. And it was just
0: like, oh. yeah, still following directions. I, yeah, I, I definitely underlined that as well. You know, he was crying, but he had not noticed. I just thought it was so. It's just such a moving moment. Poor kid. And then the Marquis tells him to run on ahead, and what does he do? Off he runs because he follows directions. He's very good at following directions.
1: Oh man. So it was a good week this week. We got mm. a lot and like it was a hard theme. But I think just looking beyond the obvious, like I think that was a hard thing was to look beyond the obvious. What is equality and what does it require? Yeah. And not to sound like I don't want to be the person who like hedges and says, well, actually. But like is equality required in order to make a system work or is it actually justice?
0: Yeah. And when, you know, when does it come to the fore? Like, what is it that triggers it more than anything? What are those experiences where you're like, yeah, this is the moment. I you know, it was very interesting. A hard week. Yeah, next week I think will be quite difficult too, because we're reading chapters 17 and 18 through the theme of heroism. Did you have anyone you wanted to spotlight this week? Yes, believe it or not, despite my rants about him, I am going to bless Richard this week. <laughs> That's okay. He really rallied. He is just so hurt by Hunter's betrayal, and he's just like so quick to cast her aside, like so quick to just like lash out, you know? Yeah. Despite her pointing out how many times she saved his life, even though he knows that intrinsically to be true, and then when she dies, he is just so so devastated, and it's because this relationship is actually one of the defining. Relationships in his life, right? Yeah. He really relies on her. He's really come to like trust her. And I just think it's such an important thing. And he didn't realize until this moment how important it was.
1: He knows he's not equal to her, but she treats him as if he is.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. And that, what a huge act of compassion on her part. Yeah, and another thing, he's still so affected by Anesthesia's death. Like, he brings her up again. And I think that it's just, like, everyone else has forgotten her. Everyone else has cast her aside. But for him, she is such a touchstone for him throughout this entire ordeal that he's in. He just keeps yeah. coming back to her. And, yeah, Richard's ability to kind of, like, find that compassion within himself to for his good heart, yeah. you know, even when it's not enough. I just really wanted to bless him for that this week. I love that. He's, he's been through a lot. It's been a day. Yeah, I would not want the week he's had, no. How about you? Did you have anyone's a spotlight?
1: Yeah. So look, it's the Marquis. I know that we've kind of joked about what a pain in the butt he is. And I know that I was very frustrated with how selfish he is. But Mm -hmm. the more that I read through the change in his behavior as like some essential part of him having been missing to keep it safe. And now that he's been absolutely the limit and has come back from the dead and has that part of himself back. His whole self is healing and he's like more of a complete person now that he's like really lost everything, which is a terrible metaphor, I realize. But the fact that he does seem to be more compassionate and he's no longer bargaining favors, but just doing things with like genuine kindness Mm. because he's trying to help. Man, I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great little redemption for him.
1: I'm glad that he gets to be a little bit kinder and I'm glad that he and old Bailey are friends. Yeah. Oh, that's nice.
0: And yeah, I think it's great for him too because he's going to be a little bit less compartmentalized in his life which allows him to live his life a bit more fully because when you cut yourself off from life you're not really experiencing it fully, right? He's just sort of put up this persona through this entire thing and not allowed himself to be whole and now he's whole.
1: Yeah, it's like in making himself more vulnerable. Yeah, he might have been hurt but he comes out of it more capable of connection.
0: I love it. I'm
1: so excited about next week except it's really just going to be chapter 17 and a single page of chapter 18.
0: Yes, chapter eighteen is one page long, so <laughs> it's going to be a short section. Well,
1: thank you so much for parting with me. Like I mm-hmm. think it was nice to actually get some
0: like closure and
1: excitement, and see that our characters that we've spent all this time with—they've really come so far.
0: Yeah, they're really coming into their own, and it's it's a privilege to kind of be on the journey with them. Right yeah. after all of that, so yeah, thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.